You're listening to the Fit Mind Fit Body Podcast, where we explore the connection between running and positive mental health. We do this by talking to runners from all walks of life who generously share their experiences with us. So you don't miss an episode, I've created an email list for you to join. Check the show notes for more details. Without further ado, I'm your host, Michelle Frost. Let's get moving. Welcome to this episode of the Fit Mind Fit Body Podcast. Today, we talk to Vajin Armstrong. He is a sponsored athlete who gets to travel all over the globe and run ultra marathons, which is awesome. But even more awesome is that he is on a journey of self-discovery through meditation and his running. Now, as if you've listened to any of my episodes, you'll know how fascinating I would find this conversation. I found it so fascinating that we spoke for two hours, so... So that you don't have to listen to us for two hours, what I've done is split it into two. So you'll be able to listen to the first episode now where we get into lots of these juicy topics around running and meditation and mindfulness. And then next week, you'll be able to listen to part two of the conversation. Enjoy. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Today on Fit Mind Fit Body, I am very excited to introduce you all to Vajin Armstrong. Hello, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me on. I'm really excited because you're one of the first people who has been suggested by somebody else that you don't know this other person, I don't know this other person, they're just a listener to the podcast. And when I, I often say, you know, dob somebody in, and it's usually they dob in a friend, but it's just, yep. they dobbed in someone that they don't know. So this is really exciting for me because not only am I getting to learn about you and make a new friend, but I'm getting to share you with everyone else as well. So thank you for agreeing to jump in. Thank you. Exciting. So anyone else who wants to dob anybody else random in that they know runs, just uh, let me know. <laughs> it works. <laughs> it can, we can get all kinds of people on and have a chat and make some new friends. So let's start, Vajin. Where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about your, your childhood. So I grew up in Christchurch in New Zealand, mm-hmm. and I had what I would consider a pretty standard sort of upbringing at that time in the 1980s. So I was born right at the start of the 1980s. And baby. I mean, for me, I, I feel very grateful to have been born at that time. Really looking back at um, the freedom that I had and the opportunity mm. to explore and have adventures. And, and, and the world definitely seemed to be, be a safer place at that time in some yeah. ways, whether it's, yeah. you know, just in, in the minds of the people or that was really the reality. But I mean, I remember just spending, um, you know, a lot of my time adventuring, traveling around with my friends on bicycles, mm-hmm. um, you know, playing a lot of sport, doing a lot of outdoor activities. And yeah, I mean, there wasn't such a focus, uh, you know, the, the online and the digital world didn't exist in, in, that, in that time. And so there was, there was a real freedom from um, the, the way that technology infiltrates into your day-to-day life. Oh my gosh, yes. there, was, there was some simplicity uh, in, in that, my life at that time, which looking back on, I really value. Yeah, it's it's amazing, isn't it, actually, when you think about that? And we could reflect on that quite a bit <laughs> at some yeah. point. Um, just just the change. Like, I, 
yeah, I grew up in the 70s um, and 80s, yeah. but I wasn't born in the 80s. <laughs> I was a teenager in the 80s um, and on and grew up in, on a farm and things. So that kind of freedom and and lack of distraction and, and it's almost like getting bored, being bored. That's one of my children yeah. often said, you know, I'm so bored, I don't know what to do. And it's because they're so used to being entertained all the time. And, yes, we got yeah. bored, but when you got bored, it was then up to you to go and do something and think of something creative outside usually and go and or pick up a book or something. Yeah. It was, it's quite a different thing, wasn't it? Yeah, I think I, I really feel that there was something really valuable about that imaginative play and mm. the ability to create your own reality and play around with those types of things that, that I think is really healthy for people. And, and you know, especially reading um, where you, you have to, you know, create the imagery and it's, mm. it's a very interactive process as well, where it's not this passive form of entertainment. So yeah, there's a there's a lot of good things about living at that time, being born at that yeah. time, and growing up during those years. And so that's been quite formative for me, I'm sure. I think um, I do sometimes. Now I'm old enough to reflect and think. Mm, my grandparents used to talk like that. <laughs> you know, yeah. used to say, "In my time, we didn't have this yeah. television, and we didn't have this microwaves and things." You know, it was quite. Um, it's quite interesting to see that generational change <laughs> yeah and I mean I mean what what I like to say about it as well is it's different perspectives and so mm. when I talk to my grandparents they had a very different perspective about life and reality yeah. and I have a different perspective about life and reality than people who were born you know around the year 2000 or people who are millennials so uh, yeah each each of us can always look back and learn something from those who have come before us because you know they've had 70 80 years of playing the game of life and there's so much commonality in the human experience, whether it's a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago. Yeah. But I think that's one of the great treasures we have as human beings is that ability to pass knowledge down across generations. Yeah. And yeah, I think too often we undervalue that and we okay. don't appreciate that, that the people who came before us lived, had very similar experiences to us. It's not that they they can't relate to the experiences we're having. You know, they may not relate to the exact technologies mm. or the exact you know, some of the very specific things about our lives, but the generalities of human experience, yeah. you know, are the same whether you lived in the 1800s yeah. or the 1500s, exactly. you know, it's relationships between people and trying yeah. to, you know, make a go of it and trying to be successful and trying to, um, you know, create connection and mm. find meaning. Yeah, that path is quite similar. Like, it, no matter, as you said, through the, all those different times uh, or decades, yeah. years, hundreds of, <laughs> anyway. The path is quite similar, as in we're born, yeah. we go on, we have yeah. a life, and that life is when it comes to relationships, as you said, whether it's, um, you know, yeah. we find someone to love or people or whatever, and then sometimes we have children and then we get to the other end of our life. And, and that's, that kind of linear thing is is uh, the same whether you were born in the 1800s yeah. or the, the 1300s or whatever or now. And, and it's amazing when you look back, actually, um, I, I quite like reading um, from Marcus Aurelius, who's one of the most famous yeah. um from the um, Stoic tradition. And, and a lot of the things, yeah, a lot of the things he says are so pertinent, like perfectly capture experiences mm. that we're having today. And he was writing, you know, over 2000 years ago. That's amazing. So it's an, it's amazing. It's amazing that despite how far things change in the outer manifestation and the appearance, the, the sort of core common human experiences remain the same across time. Wow. I love that. Well, we've got very deep, very quickly. Before we yeah. dig 
in a, an even yeah. deeper hole. Let's um. <laughs> yeah. When when you were growing up, did you have, grow up with siblings and? Yeah, so I had. I've got two younger brothers and an older sister. Okay. And yeah, so I mean, that was that's. I mean, it's, it's so interesting as well because one thing, big things that changed is families have got smaller and smaller. So, yeah. you know, my parents were. You know, there was like seven children in my dad's family, and um, you know, families were much bigger in the past. Yeah. And you know, for for my time, four was you know kind of pretty standard. You know, I knew a lot yeah. of other people that had that many brothers and sisters. Yeah. I'm one of four. But I had yeah. five just to break that little thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. You're going in the other direction. Oh, no, I just went up. That's right. So silly. Anyway, um, when you were at school, were you into sport? Was that a thing for you? Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I first came across running, actually, when I was at um, primary school. And so, so obviously, um, you'd have your sports day once a year and you'd do a little bit of running for that. So I think we had a 60-meter race and a 300-meter race. And, and the 300-meter race seemed like it was really long. It's like, you know, for, for kids at that age, I mean, I might have been nine or something like that. 300 meters seemed like a really long, long way. But I, I found that I had a natural aptitude for it. And so that's always, that's, you know, when you're young and you have something that you have some, some talent at, and you get some positive um, feedback and some yeah. positive reinforcement. It really kind of pushes you in that direction. So, yeah, it was probably about that sort of age around 10 that, that I started to sort of identify myself as someone who could, you know, who was a runner Are in some did? way. And, um, yeah, and so for those, you know, through those, those years when I was like 11, 12, 13, 14, I, was, I, was, I took my running quite seriously um, for that period of time. That's awesome. I love that. Because one of the questions we often ask in the podcast is, when did you identify as a runner? I don't need to ask you yeah. that anymore. Because <laughs> you've attached it no, to but, a, a time already. Uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was very early on. And um, yeah, I mean, I remember like going from the school and I won the 300 meter race at our school. So I was, I was you know, the best kid at our school. And then you go to the next sort of yep. level up, you know, yep. the, the next yep. school level. And yeah, I got second there. And that was kind of, one of my first experiences of, um, you know, really doing something that people were really kind of excited about, like my yeah. parents were really encouraging. Yep. And it seemed like a big deal. It seemed like, you know, it seemed like something, there's some value um, behind yeah. it. Well, other people valued it at least. And so that, that gave me um, a little bit of a hunger to sort of pursue that and see what I could discover. Oh, I love it. I um, actually had a similar experience, but mine was in high school. I was quite good at running in high school and became um you know, in my head, um, yeah. I'm a runner. you know, <laughs> I run because yeah. other people say I seem to be good at that. It was irrelevant that I was in a very small town in yeah. a very small school <laughs> and doing yeah. well out of a small pool of people. But um, for yeah. me, that was important. And it still is like, it's no matter yeah. how I, you know, belittle that in those things in my mind, it's still important yeah. as a part of who I am. So it's interesting how that happens as a child and can influence who you become as an adult. Um, yeah. Hmm. Um, so, what about school itself? Were you are you an academic person? What did that look like for you? So yeah, so my my family's relatively academic. Like my sister ended up um, studying a PhD in Australia, and mm-hmm. um, and so there was kind of she always set a high bar for the academic side of things. And mm-hmm. so I found school. I mean, I, I did find it quite engaging and through to a certain point, and it was probably like. There's kind of two points in my life, like before 
the age of 15 and after the age of 15. Okay. And, and the, there's kind of two very distinct chapters of my life. And so until I was sort of that sort of point in my life, you know, I was really, really engaged. I was really engaged in school. I was really engaged yep. in sports. So, you know, I was mm-hmm. doing my athletics and I was taking that really seriously. And that was that was probably the, the key, one of the key moments there was I had my first real crushing disappointment um, through when that was through sports and it was through okay. running. And that was when I was 14. And so from sort of when I started taking running a bit more seriously, which would have been like 11 or 12, and I actually started doing a little bit of training and I joined an athletics club and, and the success was quite linear. Like, you know, each year I got mm-hmm. a little bit better yeah. and I was a little bit more competitive. And, you know, I started doing well at the, you know, in the regional sense. And so I was winning, you know, events at, you know, secondary school level and the regional sense. And, and when I was 14, it was my first year that I was really going to focus on going to the national champs. And mm-hmm. so it was the national secondary school championships. And so that's in New Zealand, that's in December every year. And so yeah. I spent all winter training for it. So for, sort of from, you know, April all the way through to December, that was my big goal was to go to the secondary school champs. And it was my last year in the junior division. And so I really wanted to win a medal. That was yeah. my whole focus was winning a medal over 800 meters. And so I trained really well and I went up there and I was really focused and convinced of my ability to achieve my goal. And, and there's, at the secondary school champs, there's so many kids taking part. So they have heats, they have semi-final and then a final. And so um, I think I won or got second in my heat and I felt really good. And the next day we came back to the semi-finals and I was leading the race and the 800 meters, as, as people who know have run on the tra- track, is only two laps. So it's quite a short race. But it, when, you're a, when you're a youngster, it seems quite long. Yeah. Um, so it's about, you know, two minutes and five. I think we called it middle distance. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I was I was leading the heat, and then um, halfway through, another young kid sprinted past me, and then he he cut in front of me, and then immediately slowed down, and that caused the whole race to bunch up, and everyone else moved around outside me, so I ended up getting blocked in on the inside oh on the on the pole line, oh yeah. and so suddenly with three hundred meters to go in the race. I basically have to wait until everyone's gone past and then I can move out. So I'm basically oh, in last position suddenly. No. And so so I'm frantically trying to sprint past as many people as I can in the last 200 metres. And I got up to fourth. But only the first three people automatically no. qualified for the final. And I ended up missing out on making <sighs> the final by 0.1 of a second or something oh, like that. Oh, my gosh. And so, so that was... I mean, it, it seems, it seems uh, you know, you can look at it now and you, and you obviously, we all yeah. have a lot more perspective. But as, at that point in my life, I'd really believed the sort of idea that if you work hard and you mm. make good choices and you do the right thing, that you're going to get the results that you deserve. Mm. And so suddenly I found myself in a situation where I really felt like I'd done everything, everything I could possibly mm. do to perform as well as I could and to achieve my goal. And my goal was all wrong. Like my goal was all about the outcome. It was, yeah. I had no idea about sort of process or focusing on the, the journey. It was all about the outcome. And so suddenly I put all of this time and effort into something, hoping and dreaming of this particular result. And then that was snatched away from me. Yeah. And so that really, that really changed my life in some way because it, it suddenly made me ask some deeper questions. Like, you know, what is the point of doing something that's challenging and difficult if you're only one injury or an illness mm. away from all of that being taken away from you. 
And at that point in my life, I didn't know. I didn't know what the value of sport was. I didn't know yeah. what the value of running was. Yeah. Um, so because I'd never really thought about it. And so yeah. this, this, that, that experience in my life really changed, uh, sort of it made me ask much deeper and more profound questions. And as well as at, at that point, there's so many other temptations. So all of my friends mm. at that point were 14, people were turning 15. So people are starting to go out and, you know, socialize a lot mm -hmm. more. And so there's a lot of other activities that I could be doing. Mm. And, you know, I was really dedicated and focused on running at that point. And, and you know, then I had this, this really big crushing disappointment for me. And that caused me to really decide to walk away from the sport. And so, you know, it's, it, it's so funny that, you know, at sort of 14, 15, I'd already decided, right, that's, that's it, it. That my, running, my running career is done. And it's so funny looking and seeing how much running I've done now in my life. It's, you know, just so patiently absurd. But, you know, that was very much where I was at at that point. You know, I, I thought, right, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put all my time and effort into something when it's, it's the result is not guaranteed. You know, I'd rather go and, and hang out with my friends and do things that are fun in the moment. And, and so that started me off on a completely different journey. And, and that was really when I started to sort of explore other avenues of life. And that's when I started to, to become interested in, in meditation and consciousness and all of these yeah. other things, which, you know, that's really sort of the guiding principles in my life now so but it all started from this crushing disappointment so I'm so grateful that I didn't get a medal like if I'd won a medal there it would have been an absolute tragedy but at the, at the time it was a tragedy yeah. that I didn't win a medal because so you, you've had to, the drive would be different in you yeah it would be my a life would be drive. radically different yeah mm -hmm. I'd be a different person if I hadn't had that that moment because at some point you have to realize that the world doesn't care about your feelings <laughs> the world can be incredibly harsh and difficult and challenging. And, and always like the, the, the Buddha's, you know, very blunt analysis of life. All life is suffering, he said. And, and, and on some level, it's completely true because no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, everyone is going to let you down. You know, your body is going to let you down, yeah. your family and friends, you know, everyone you know is going to pass away and everything you work so hard for in your life is going to turn to dust. So in some ways, it's a tragic story. But in another way, it's incredibly meaningful and poignant because it's a tragic story, because everything will turn to dust at some point. And so it's only a fleeting moment we have. It's only a fleeting life. It really calls us to really engage fully in the here and now and to be there fully with the people around us because we can't guarantee that we've got them for you know any length of time. Anything can change in a moment. So I guess so. so. Yeah, so for me... When I reflect on some of that, I think about the mindfulness training that I have done and about acceptance yeah. and that accepting that yeah. that life is not, as you said, as the Buddha said, is not, it's, it's tragic, but it's what do we, the meaning we give even to tragic, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, that just the acceptance yeah. of that. It's only because of that. And um, there's also the other, the balance thing. I'm not very good at explaining myself often, um, which is weird because I'm a All help. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, it's, there's the balance as well, so that if we didn't yeah. have things in our life that were horrid, we wouldn't really yeah. know when things are amazing. If everything was vanilla all the time, that yeah. would be kind of boring too. So there's that. You almost need to have the opposites, the yin and the yang, yeah. in order to appreciate the amazing things we do have, as well as accepting yeah. the things that are not great. And it's in that, yeah. that coming to some point of acceptance, I think, which is the biggest challenge for most of us to, in yeah. our journey. 
And, and I'm so pleased that you mentioned acceptance because this is the one thing that I'm always talking to people about. So acceptance for me is the fundamentally the right position to step into the world from. And, you know, I've, I, I'm very lucky that now I get to travel all around the world and, you know, through both my running and through both meditation. So I've, I'm out in Europe here at the moment and I've been teaching some meditation workshops in different places. I took some workshops in Berlin and Amsterdam. Mm. And, and wherever I go, that's one of my key messages is really the power of acceptance. Mm. And because when you think of an idea that could transform your life, you don't often think of acceptance. You, you kind of think of sort of more sort of prominent or powerful qualities. You mm -hmm. know, people Action. think if I had more courage, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, if I had more courage or if I had more discipline or if I had more, um, you know, um, um, confidence to get mm -hmm. out there and do things. And it, it seems like all of those things are totally great qualities, but the fundamental right place to start from is where you are right here, right now. And mm. that comes, that requires real acceptance. And, and what I try and tell people and explain is that we've got two ways of dealing with any moment. We can either choose to accept reality or we can choose to resist reality. Mm -hmm. And resistance is really the cause of suffering. And you, you know that I know what you that, resist. Yeah, and, and also whatever happens has already happened. Mm. So if you wish that somehow things were different, you're mm -hmm. trying to somehow fight against reality. And reality really is yeah. the greatest teacher because there is an objective reality that we have to deal with. So, you know, and, and if, if we just start by looking at the most basic level, if you look at yourself, most people have things about themselves that they're not willing to, exist, to, to accept. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe they are not as tall as they want to be, they're not as handsome or they're not as beautiful. You know, they've got a stutter, they've got this, they've got that, they've got, you know, skin conditions, they've got, you know, a fungus on their toenail, who knows what it is. <laughs> You know, everyone's got oh, things yeah. about themselves that, that, that they're not willing to, that not willing yet to accept. And when you're in that situation, you're always a victim because you're always mm. a victim to the circumstance or the situation that you actually can't change. And, and mm. then, you, you know, you kind of come up a level from there. You know, you've got yourself. And then you look at your circumstances that you grew up in. You've got your family. You've got your workmates. You've got your relationships with your, your near ones and your dear ones. And... And you see and hear so many people go through life telling stories about how their life would have been perfect if, if, if something was different, if only, you know, if, if they'd gone yeah. to the right school or they'd been given the right opportunities or if they had this or had mm -hmm. that. And so they're also not accepting their, their life in this situation. And so that's causing resistance and that's causing mm -hmm. suffering. So it seems like the best gift we can give ourselves is to just completely accept who we are mm. and the situation we find ourselves in now. Because it seems like when you do that, suddenly you're stepping out of that victimhood and you're stepping into your own power and your own ability to make positive change in your life. And so for me, that's, that seems like if you can do that, you're suddenly freeing yourself from all of that baggage, all of that... Yeah suffering that you've been carrying around with you for, for, for countless years and suddenly you, you're starting to free yourself to be present here and now and start to make those positive changes that you want in your life mm. oh I love that that's amazing we could just so, talk only about this stuff and that would be cool with me but <laughs> yes. instead one of the things that and we will get back in and out of this a lot, I think, because it's, it yeah. is also my focus and you're much further on that journey so I can learn a lot more from you. So I'll be um, 
asking you lots of questions for me in shortly. Great. Anyway, um, <laughs> to start with, though, one of the things that popped up when you were talking then was um, how does a 15-year-old start on, t- on a process to where you are now? You know, so you you said you sort of became uh, interested in meditation and things like that. I thought, yeah. honestly, that when you said you decided to drop running because, you know, you weren't winning everything all of a sudden for different reasons, even though you tried everything you could, um, and that was inherently unfair, that, <laughs> that therefore you would do what most 15, 16, 17-year-olds do and they would, I don't know, I want to use the word party, <laughs> but no, you said meditation. I that still... I'm trying to work out how that happened. Sorry. Yes. So, so I, I had an experience in, in my life, which was only a few months after my big crushing defeat and my yeah. my my um, great disappointment um, that started this whole journey off. And so, I'd just been out with friends, and I ended up staying um, overnight at a friend's house. And I woke up really early in the morning, and I decided, right, I'm going to walk home. And um, that was what I did. So I just left his house probably 6.30 in the morning. Yeah. And I had my Walkman on in those days. And so I had the radio stations. And so I was flicking through the radio stations while I was walking home. And I just came across a radio station that was just playing the sound of the ocean. So it was just that lovely swooshing oh, of the, a- of the a- ocean. ASMR, that comes is that what they call it now? ASMR, yeah. I think. So, so uh, yeah, so there was, it was this, oh. this lovely moment of walking along. It's like late summer. And at one moment, I just decided to turn around and I looked back over the local hills, which are called the Port Hills in Christchurch. And I could see the sun was rising over the hills. And, and, and I'm in this park-like setting and it's very beautiful. Everything was, was just aesthetically just perfect. There's this lovely golden, you know, early morning light coming in. I'm listening to the sounds of the ocean. Yeah. And suddenly in that moment, I had an experience I'd never had before where I suddenly felt this expansion or this opening inside my chest I felt this opening inside my heart and I'd never felt anything like this before and I'd never even heard anyone talk about this sort of thing before and so I suddenly felt this expansion and this connection to the world around me so as I was breathing in I felt this expansion and then I'd feel this connection to all of the plants the trees everything around me and the next time I'd breathe in I'd feel that expand again and suddenly I was feeling this expansion I felt this connection with the city around me and yeah. it just kept on expanding and expanding. And I felt like I was like going up and up. And it was like I was going up to higher and higher levels of, of connection. And so suddenly I was feeling my connection to the world. And then suddenly I'm feeling my connection to the universe. And this was completely mind-blowing for me That's as amazing. a 15-year-old with, with sort of no background in this type of experience. And, and really the, 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 the experience probably only lasted for, for three or four minutes. But it was so powerful and so profound. And it... And really the takeaways I had from it was in that moment, I did not feel like some separate finite being in some giant, uncaring, mm-hmm. infinite universe. Mm-hmm. In that moment, I felt absolutely connected to the universe around mm-hmm. me. And I felt like that I was an integral part of that universe. I was mm-hmm. not something separate outside of it. And this is a big human problem that that often we find ourselves as some sort of imposter here in the world. We find ourselves as some outsider who's been thrown into reality. And and it's a painful and difficult experience for all Mm. of us to deal with. But in this experience I was having, I felt completely integrally whole with reality. And and the universe in that moment, to me, it's in true nature seemed to be unconditional love. Like that's Mm. the only words I could explain 
used to explain what the nature of reality felt like to me in that moment. And so it was so profound and powerful that that experience alone has, has, has led me on a journey, you know, of nearly 30 years now. So um, what was the next step for a 15 year old? So that. the next step was, was to run back to my friend's house and wake him up and tell him, hey, hey, I understand the universe. And for him, it's another, he was like, what are you talking about, man? Like, go back to sleep. And so that's, that really started, like, if I was going to explain my life in a few words, like mm-hmm. I was thinking about this earlier, like the, the words that I used were explorer or seeker. And so for me, that's what I've been doing. Since I had that experience, I've been constantly seeking and exploring both the outer world and the inner world, trying to understand and to bring some, some connection and, and full, um, like full integration in my, my life between that experience I had at that point and then how I choose to live my life. Because that experience was so profound. And it was, it was also very difficult because, you know, I had to keep going to school and I had to deal with my teachers and my family and all, all of the normal everyday things to my friends. But it was like a glimpse and peek behind the curtain of reality. And I'd realized that there was something far more interesting going on mm-hmm. in the world than I've been told. And so, so that was, it, was it, it totally changed my relationship with schooling and sports and all of those yeah. things for quite some years because I felt as though that I was being there was something I wasn't being told now. There was something yeah. really profoundly important and valuable in life that I wasn't being told. And so that made me slightly suspicious of authority and school oh, wow. and, and all of the things because I'd, I'd glimpsed this reality was so beautiful and so profound. And yet every day at school, we were being told to, you know, look at, you know, yeah. the valence shells of electrons, you know, <laughs> on an atom. And I was like, there's something incredible going on here. No one is talking about like, what is going on here? So, so my, my interest in academics and schooling and all of those things really waned very quickly. But my interest in spirituality and, and so I actually started like, you know, going and sitting in, in lectures um, at the university on Buddhism. That was kind of my gateway into a real deeper spirituality. So, and, and of course, as well, at that point in time, you know, like you said, there's a lot of partying and a lot of people mm. going out and doing wild things. So, so, you know, I explored all of those avenues yeah. as well. I thought, you know, maybe there's some substance I can take or there's, yeah, you know, something will. I could do that will, will sort of recreate that experience. Yeah. And, you know, I quickly found that that wasn't what I was looking for because, uh, yeah. you know, whenever I tried substances, I'd go up and then I'd crash back down. And so yeah. what I was looking for was how do you go up and not have to come back down? How do you, how do you go on a natural and, and harmonious journey of trying to expand your awareness and try to deepen mm. your reality without having to have these huge crashes, you know, that people have when they go out partying and using substances yeah. and things like that. Yeah. So, wow. So. Did you? It's pretty amazing, really. I'm <laughs> I'm trying to compute all that into my head. Um, I can. I remember having a similar um, feeling, but I was running. You know, early yeah. in the morning in my twenties, yeah. running the further you know, the furthest I'd run at that time. But the sun was coming up, and that beautiful yeah. sort of and feeling, you know, completely one with everything and connected, as yes. you said, on all of that. Um, so yeah. I felt like that was a path for me. How did you, um, ha- what happened at school? Like, how did you, yeah, what did you, what happened for you next? Like you, you said you weren't that happy with school and things. What did you go on and do? What did you do work-wise? Or did you go straight into the spiritual side and 
become yes so that was that was a long and and you know slightly um, um, difficult journey to find yeah. some meaning because first of all you've you know you've had this glimpse of something but you mm. don't even know what it's called and and you know there's no there's no internet that I could go do a search on um, easily at that point and yeah. it's not the same same access to information people have now so you know so I started trying to talk to as many people as I could so I talked to my friends I talked mm -hmm. to other people. And you know, ask people questions, and and you know, I, I did become slightly more cynical towards the um, you know the whole schooling enterprise, mm. and so I, I really you know I, I took less and less pleasure and interest in that, and I took more and more pleasure and interest in my own sort of exploration. So mm -hmm. I started to read a lot of books. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like books like the Tibetan Book of the Dead. You know, that just really gripped me. The idea that there was your some form of consciousness existed you know between lifetimes yeah. and you know that was just so gripping for me that idea and so I started to really play around with a lot of those things and as I said you know my parents were really supportive like I remember my dad like on weekday that. evening yeah. you know he was dropping me off at the university so I could go sit in on public lectures on Buddhism and and so there was there was you know I, I had I had some really good support and you know I managed to make it through um, my schooling and uh, and you know I had a you know I had some aptitude for it so you know I still got good grades and things mm -hmm. like that but I was really you know mentally and emotionally had checked out from school you know I was I was on my own crusade or my own journey to try and figure out a little bit of of what I was looking for and it was really in my last year of school I actually came started to study meditation seriously and so mm -hmm. that was a really key point for me because before that I was really sort of you know jumping from one idea to the other and. And what I needed was to meet some people who actually knew what I was looking for and had a little bit more of a systemized approach to, mm -hmm. to the practice. And so in 1998, I sort of came across my first um, uh, meditation classes. And so, you know, being a student, I had no money to go and, you know, do some meditation workshops. And, you know, there's a lot of meditation workshops now, but at that point, it was really just transcendental meditation. Mm -hmm. And it was even, there was not really anyone doing any Buddhist meditation. So. Okay. I came across um, a group called the Sri Chinmoy Center, and um, that was, I, I saw that, <laughs> yeah, they had some flyers for some free meditation workshops, yeah. so that was the first thing that jumped out at me, was free, and so, you know, I was totally <laughs> on board with that, and then I saw a little picture of um, the teacher, of the teacher, Sri Chinmoy, and so, yeah. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I had become quite cynical of authority and mm. religion and all of those structures of society. And what was really cool, though, was when I saw his picture in that moment, I just got a really a, a strong sense of authenticity. And so, mm -hmm. you know, for me personally, I felt like, okay, this person knows something that I don't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if, if I'm humble enough to sort of try and um, come along and learn what, what, what they're offering, you know, maybe I'll learn something. And so, you know, I came along and, and, and I'd well and truly fallen out of love with sports and running yeah. and all of these things. You know, I thought mm -hmm. they were just you know, there's a famous saying that, you know, sports is just the opiate for the masses. And, you know, I was yeah. very much, that was, that was my position. Of I the think time. that's watching you know, sport. All... <laughs> anyway, <Yeah. laughs> sometimes a sport. Anyway, I could get into that. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. But so, you know, I'd kind of, you know, I'd kind of turn my back on all of those pursuits. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was so funny though, because I came along and I started to learn meditation with the tree, the tree chin center. And the first time I came along to one of the meditation workshops, I had the exact same experience from sort of, you know, three or four years earlier, my, my own experience. 
And so immediately I was like, you know, yes, this is what I'm looking for. Mm. I'm looking for some sort of structured, systematic practice of meditation. Yeah. And, but then the funny thing was, as I got more and more involved, I started to see Sri Chinmoy um, and I started to see that he, although he had reached really the heights of meditation that I was looking for, he still found value in sports and physical fitness mm-hmm. and physical activities. He was running, he was lifting weights, he was doing all of these outer things. And so this totally uh, caused me to have to go back and re-examine all of my beliefs because, because obviously he was seeing something that I wasn't in sports and running in particular. And so it was, it was kind of, I had this hiatus from running from when I was 15 to when I was about 20. Yeah. And, and when I came back to running, it was with a completely different mindset. It was really completely as running, being a tool for self-development, as being mm-hmm. a tool for the practice of mindfulness and meditation. And, and my, my, my focus with running when I came back to it was all about the journey of self-transcendence. It was about my own unique personal mm-hmm. experiences and how I could challenge myself and push my own limitations and trying to step into the unknown through the practice of running. So, so yeah, it was, it was a beautiful journey that went from, you know, the renouncing of something and then coming back to it, but seeing it in a completely new light. So when that happened, did you then, like, what did running look like for you then? Because it's quite a different thing, the running at school and even the training that you were doing for the you know, upcoming races and things like that at school. What did it look like, yeah. this new running that you adopted? So, so it was really all about the mindset and the intention. That was mm-hmm. really the key thing that changed. And so instead of it being all about the, um, the outer, the results, mm-hmm. there was, uh, I, I learned to value the daily process of of the art of running so it's like running is a practice like meditation is a practice running is a practice there's many things we do which are a practice which you never really say that you've mastered running like I would never Mm. say that I've mastered meditation it's something that I know it's a a practice that I need to do Mm. on a daily basis because it has so many positive benefits in my life Mm. and so so for me the the two things go hand in hand every morning when I get up um, I meditate for 20 to 30 minutes Mm-hmm. And then after that, I'll go out running and I'll run, you know, for however long um, I mm-hmm. have on my daily schedule. But, but yeah, when, when I came back to running, really the running that I knew was a sort of competitive running where, yeah. you know, you were going in races. And, and, and that's, that's a big part of, of the running scene as well. You know, obviously, most people, when you think of running, you say, oh, well, you know, have you done a marathon? Have you done a half marathon? Mm-hmm. You know, we always turn it to the sort of, you know, these outer mm-hmm. validations of, of yeah. you know, how fast have you run for 5K or 10K? Yeah. Or you know, have you done an ultra marathon? Have you done 100 miles? All of those, those things are a big part of the culture that's around mm-hmm. running. And so, so when I came back to running, you know, even though I had a different mindset, still the culture of running sort of pushes you in a certain direction. So, so, you know, I came back when I was 20, I think I started running again. And, and it's, it's really funny because when I first started running again, um, there was a local um, running coach that I knew and, you know, he'd always, he'd been, I knew him through my running club and, you know, he'd been involved with Arthur Lydiard and, um, you know, so he was a really high level running coach. Mm-hmm. And so I went to him when I was 20 and I said, look, you know, I, I really wanted to do some running again. Can you help me? So he gave me, gave me a program. And when I first of all saw the program, I almost fell off my chair because it just seemed so extreme. Like what, cause what I'd done as a 13 year old and a 14 year old, it, when you train at that age, you want to keep the training really, really light yeah. because kids are still developing. You don't yeah. want to load them up with all mm-hmm. this mileage. And then as a 20 year old to come back, 
to, to a guy who coaches through the Arthur Lydiard style, you know, he had me running two hours on Tuesdays and Thursdays, <laughs> you know, two and a half hours or three hours on Sunday. And then he had me running twice a day a lot of the time. And I was like, oh, my God. It's like, how on earth could it be possible to do all of this running? And and it's so funny now because, you know, I'm 43 years old now. And I've spent the last 23 years, like, running like that on a, on a, on a weekly basis. So, you know, I, I've run 100-mile week for 20 years now. And for me, running twice a day is completely normal. Like, I couldn't. I, like running once a day seems abnormal to me now. So I've run twice a day for, for probably most of that 20 years. Oh. And, and so it's, it's so funny when I, when I remember how I first looked at that. And it's, it's the wonderful thing about the human organism, how adaptable we are. Like yeah. You put some load on, you let the body recover, it bounces back a little bit stronger. You put some more load on, yeah. it bounces back with some recovery. And so for me, I'm at the point now where I'll do like two to three hours of running a day is completely normal yeah. and it feels feels strange if i only went for one run for a day that would feel like you know i'd get itchy feet in the yeah. evening like come yeah. on you know just there's, there's 24 on. hours in a day i can get out and go for another run <laughs> that's amazing that it's just become such a big part of your life like that in that you can yeah you know um it almost feels like the podcast is starting to to, like, because we start off with people who are really, really excited to have run their 10Ks and their whatever, and they might be running two or three times a week. And then we got into yeah. a vein of talking to people who are doing ultra marathons um, and ultra yeah. trail runs. And they're often certainly running um, more than two or three times a week and sometimes yeah. twice a day um, and often at least every day something. <laughs> Whereas, yeah. and now I'm talking to you and you're talking about running twice a day all the time. So it's like <laughs> got this sort of crescendo that the podcast is, seems to be on. So you've got this, I've taken on running, adopted it as a part of who you are really. Yeah. Um, but you came to it again through the um, the meditation side with the Sri. Yeah. I can't, I can, Chim, Chim. Chin Moy. Chimney. I always get, I always want to say chimney. I think that's what my head wants to do. Um, so yeah. I'm not very good at saying it. Um, so you're now, one of the things that you do is travel the world. You were saying at the beginning and do meditation classes and all that kind of thing. You talk to people about meditation. Is that through yeah. that organization? Is that through the Sri Chimnoy organization? Did I do that right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, very good. Yeah. So we have meditation centers all around the world. And yeah. so, and um, yeah, so I, I'm often, so one of the, the big things for the last, since 2010, I, I got into ultramarathon. So, yes. so that's probably kind of a, a key part of the story as well. Oh, but yes. from 2000 to 2010, I was running track races in 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathons and marathons. And, and there, was, there was definitely a, a sense of progress for a lot of that time. But there was also mm. a lot of times where I felt like there was a real plateau, like there was a depth of experience I was still looking for from my running that I still hadn't yeah. quite managed to find yet. And it really wasn't until 2009 I ran my first ultramarathon. And I was actually very resistant about stepping up to ultramarathons because when I started running, people who did ultramarathons were older runners. They were people who were mm -hmm. sort of towards the end of their running journey and they were too slow to do any of the shorter races. And this so you is what still had that. You still had the speed but, thing in your head, didn't you? 
so yeah it's like you know i was running with a lot of really fast runners and yeah. and you know people who were really competitive on a national level yeah. and and so that was what i saw as as what running was about you know you were trying to see how fast you could go yeah and it was just these older guys i knew a few older guys and I'd, I'd look at them and think what are these guys doing and and they were you know doing ultra marathons often on the trails and, and they were starting to play a different game that I didn't quite understand at that time. Yeah. And it wasn't until I got to sort of 2009 and, and I started to inwardly feel like there was something along that journey of, of going longer and longer distances that was starting to really sort of tug at me. And it wasn't until I did my first ultramarathon that I started to really realize that there was a whole different game you could play where it was no longer about how strictly fast you were, but it was it was the experience itself stretched out over such a long period of time that yeah. that became the challenging thing. It was like how much intensity were you willing to experience over a prolonged period of time? Because short races, you know, it's like the gun goes in like a five k. You've got to be yeah. running basically as hard as you can from the get go, and you just try and hang on. And and the race goes by so quickly <laughs> that you don't have a lot of time to really dive Reflect into the and, inner aspect mm. of it. No, there's not a lot of reflection going on. It's mm. like, you know, you're just trying to keep going. You're at just that breathing. Intensity. <laughs> yeah, until you get to the end. And suddenly you're doing a race that might be five hours or 10 hours long. You've got a lot of time to, to sort of ponder the experience mm. that you're actually having. You've got mm. a lot of time to really dive into that experience. And that was what became really fascinating to me because the experience starts off like an ultramarathon always starts off and you feel great. It's like no yeah. one should feel terrible in the first 10 kilometers of an ultramarathon. Mm -hmm everyone's feeling comfortable and they're enjoying themselves and you've got time to chat with the other runners. Yeah. And so there's this real camaraderie and the spirit of we're all here together. Mm -hmm. We're all doing something different, you know, from the first place to the last place. There's, there's a oneness between all of the competitors and those types of races. And, and it's, it's over time, slowly, but surely the experience becomes more and more challenging mm -hmm. until the last quarter of the, you know, of any ultra marathon race becomes incredibly challenging. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, it, it tests you and draws out things from you. And it, it asks you to pay a price that's very different to a 5K. Mm -hmm. A 5K, you can really put a lot of sort of, you know, vital and emotional energy and just really force yourself. Mm -hmm. An ultra marathon, when you get to sort of two and a half hours to go and you're already feeling like, wow, it's been a long day already, you know, still got like, mm -hmm. you know, some big climbs and some big mountains to go through. It really asks a different question about what are you willing, what price are you willing to pay mm -hmm. to get to that finish line? And you learn things about yourself that you don't learn in a 5K. Mm. And so for me, that was deeply interesting. It's like, what, what would you find out about yourself when you've been running for 80K through the mountains and, you know, mm -hmm. you get to the bottom of a, of a big alpine climb and a thousand meters of vertical in front of you? What would you learn about yourself in that moment? And so that's been, that's been the game that's really started to, that really started to, deepen my running experience and so sort of from 2010 onwards I've been really lucky that I've been able to travel the world and do a whole lot of interesting races all over the world um yeah the uh, one of the people on the podcast whose name escapes me uh he's one of Australia's um <coughs> ultra marathon runners he talked about that I asked him why do you like to do these longer distances these ultra distances over days and things and one of the things he said which is another way of saying what you just said and that was that he loves the way it breaks you down and then builds you back up again by the time you, you finish. So yeah. it's that kind of whole experience you have in that journey from the start to the end of a, an ultramarathon. Yeah. 
it's 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 very much like that and it's very much like a whole lifetime in a day where mm. you have your highs and your lows you have you have some some really dark moments you have to really battle through and mm. you have some really triumphant moments and and I always feel that the person who stands at the start line and the person who arrives at the finish line is not the same person. Mm. So there's some price that you pay out there in an ultra marathon, and it's some transformative price that you pay. You have to transform yourself in some way to get to the finish line. And I always, I always love that because for me, if I'm going to spend a lot of time and effort doing something, I want to feel that I'm not just doing it for a physical material reason, but I want mm. to feel like there's some, some slightly deeper or more meaningful reason behind it as well. And I always find that when I focus on and train for an ultra marathon and go through that whole process, it is transformative, even though I've done 70 or 80 ultra marathons. Mm. Each time I line up and go through the experience, it's still in some way transformative. And, and you see that the sport continues to progress because as people get up to a different level they do their first 100k and they do their mm. first 100 miler and now it's progressing to these 200 milers and yeah these backyard ultras and you know there's all these <laughs> multi-day <amazing>. ultras <laughs> yeah so this 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 it doesn't seem like we've found the limit of what we can learn through this endeavor and it's, it's really fascinating for me as well to see how in our modern world where the modern world is so focused on comfort and making mm. your life more easier, making your life easier and more convenient. Mm. Why on earth then are all these people finding themselves lining up for backyard ultras? hundred mile quite a thing, hasn't it? It's quite like, if you it, think about it, like when I was there, yeah, like I can remember when I started running in my twenties, um, apart from my younger years, like you, um, you know, we, we had the runner's world and I was going through it, but it just wasn't, it's just, there were the number of people trying to do the longer distances, especially, or even just running in general. It's just yeah. exploded in the last decade or so, I think. Yeah. So, and I, I think there must, there's something, there's something that our culture is missing. There's some mm. form of challenge mm. or struggle or difficulty that people are really craving. It's like mm. they need, they need that in their life, and they need it so much that they're willing to pay hundreds of dollars right. to do these the races. The more comfortable get they get, the less comfortable they know that they want to get. <laughs> exactly. So it seems like this experience has some value for people that it's that, that society hasn't quite grasped yet. And I think people who've done these events have have realised that there's some there's something that they get from doing these things that the rest of their day-to-day life isn't providing them. Mm. And, and often people who are outside of the running world will look at these people and say, oh, you know, these people are crazy. You know, yeah. what are they doing out there? But people, no one's crazy and no one's stupid. People wouldn't be doing these things unless they were getting more value mm. out of the experience than the price that they pay to do these. Things. To do it, yeah. And, and that's so, physical, so, not just dollars. <laughs> yeah, and so, yeah, exactly. There's, you know, price. very high yeah. price that you have to pay. Mm. And so, so I, I think it's always good that if you see people doing something you don't understand, don't immediately think that that's stupid or what they're doing mm. is wrong. What you instead want to think, okay, these people have seen something that I haven't seen. They're, they're seeing mm. some, some part of reality that I don't quite understand. And Exactly. And so maybe mm. if I talk to them with an open mind, maybe they'll share with me a little bit of what they're actually doing. Mm. Like, what are they out there doing? You know, when someone's doing a backyard ultra and they've been out there running for two days, you know, around a seven kilometer loop. Like, what are they really doing? Because on one level, we see see the outer aspect, but there's yeah. something much more interesting going on inwardly. I think. Mm, yeah, I agree. 
It's fascinating. And it's not necessarily anything that they could articulate either. No, but, uh, but I, I think human beings are really good at seeing, like when we admire someone or we see something in someone else, it's that sort of idea of sort of mimicry or we, we, mm. we that we, it's like for me, when we see someone we really admire, it's not the person that's important. It's the qualities that they're manifesting. Mm. If, if, you know, you really admire a great sportsman, you know, or a great, you know, artist or, or, or someone, mm. you know, a great politician or, you know, a world leader, Nelson Mandela, it's not the person themselves that you're admiring. It's the, the sort of the transcendent qualities that mm. they've manifested in their lives. And so when we see someone doing something and we get inspired by what they've done, it's, it's, there's something, we're seeing something transcendent in what they did. And so it might be even a friend of ours and, mm. and our friend, you know, may have run their first 50K race. And we look at them and we realize our friend is not the same person that they were six months ago. There's mm -hmm. something about them that's changed. And, and we're seeing that discipline or that um, courage or that bravery or that um, that confidence that they've gained we're seeing that they've gained something from doing that thing mm. and then that's then we're inspired to do that thing too because we see as well we're lacking in some of those things mm. maybe we need more discipline we need more confidence we may need more bravery or courage or whatever it is and so I think that's always really interesting to pay attention when you, when you do see people around you and you start to admire something about them like think okay what really is it because it's not really the person the person is just mm -hmm. the vehicle it's the the qualities or that the we're picking the, up that we desire that we're picking mm -hmm. up exactly mm -hmm. yeah I love that that's a really good point um I don't know how to ask this question how do you deal with the concept from others but also maybe internally that some people deal with when they're doing ultras and that is that it's a selfish endeavor is that even the right yeah. word to use? Oh, I, I think that's a really good, that, that's, that's one of the, the most important things I think we mm. get some understanding around because like, like we said, the price is high that you have to mm. pay to do an ultra marathon, like both in, in the, the cost of doing the event, the cost of getting to the event, but also purely in the amount of time and effort you need to put into preparing for it. So mm -hmm. if you're going to run your first 100 kilometer race, you need to be doing a lot of training um, to prepare for that so mm. you can have the best possible experience. And so, so you have to pay the price of getting out there and yeah. getting your training done, whether it's getting up early in the morning or going out in the evenings or going long runs on the weekend. But also everyone around you has to pay that price in some way as well. So, mm -hmm. you know, your partner, your children, your workmates, yeah. all of the people around you in some way pay the price. And so if, if we look at it purely on a physical point of view, we could say, you know, well, isn't that selfish? You know, you're taking all this time and energy mm -hmm. to do something that is purely for you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's totally the wrong way of looking at the, at, mm -hmm. at the situation, because what, what I would say is if we looked at it from a different perspective, we could say you are trying to act out some heroic story. Like one of the oldest stories for humanity is, is the heroic archetype. Mm -hmm. And the hero is someone who, who goes outside of the tribe, has all these adventures, does all these difficult things, faces monsters. And while they're out there, they learn something of, of tremendous value. And, and this is what we sort of, in, in the mythological sense, you would talk about the treasure, you know, the gold. Yeah. You, you defeat the yeah. dragon and you get this gold. When I look at that, I, I see a story of information. Like someone's gone out there, they've fought monsters, they've gained some new information, and then they come back to the tribe and they share it with the tribe. 
And really, when someone's going on a heroic journey, when they're going mm-hmm. out there to run 100K, that's what they're doing. They're going out there. And when they're out there, they're going to face dragons. They're going to face monsters. And they're going to face their own personal internal monsters. And by facing up to those things and challenging them and defeating them, they're going to gain some wisdom and some treasure that they can actually come back and share mm. with the people around them. So, so I would say it's actually the most valuable possible thing you can do for your family is mm. you go out, have some adventures, challenge yourself in some ways, face, face a dragon, find out what its treasure is. And when you come back to your family, you're not the same person that, that left on that journey. And although the price can seem really, really high, if you can come back as a transformed person with more wisdom, with more depth, with more compassion, with more love, any of these things are going to make your relationships with your family so much more profound. Hmm. And in some ways, more importantly as well, you're passing on this archetype, this idea of being a hero and going out and challenging ignorance. And so that's something that like, to me, that is the, that is the best, Mm -hmm. And most mm. valuable thing you can offer to the world around you is be a true example of what a human being can be. Mm. And so although your workmates may tell you, you know, you're so selfish spending all your time doing this, <laughs> at some point they're going to realize that you going out and doing the selfish thing has transformed you in such a way that, that it's forcing them to transform themselves. You know, they can't, yeah. you can't be around someone who's playing the game of transformation without, effect, without it affecting you. You know, if, if you have someone in your life who's playing a game like that and going out and really challenging ignorance and challenging their limitations yeah. and coming back, it can't help but force you to actually start to look at yourself and to start to realize that you've got areas in your own life that you can grow. So I think yeah. it's something of, of tremendous value and that. not at all selfish. Very good answer. Thank you. Especially, I mean, mothers in particular have a hard yes. time. Um, yeah, adjusting to that, or um, and, and, uh, people in I those really, kind of traditional roles. Yeah, they're... and I, re- I, I really feel for them because you, you know you've got these two conflicting parts of your your being. You've got your your the, the mother archetype where mm. you want to be there and you know offer mm. everything you have that and you know offer all your love and nurture mm-hmm. and lift your children up as much as possible. But you also, as a mother, you all of us have the masculine and feminine within us. So you have that, that, that part of you that, that can go out and explore and wants to have adventures and wants to challenge yourself. And so, because I also do some coaching and so, you know, I have yeah. quite a few wonderful mothers that, you know, that we have to talk about this often because there is, you know, there's a sense of often of guilt or, you know, selfishness that yeah. like, you know, am I, am, am I, you know, not being there for my children? And, and, you know, I need to keep reminding them what you're doing is going to give your children skills and knowledge and, um, and a view of the world that is so valuable for them going forward. Because what you're trying to do is we're trying to make the next generation more brave and resilient and stronger than we were. Mm. And, and a lot of the stories we see in our culture are about protection, about making them as safe as possible, about taking away all of the challenges in life. And, and so mm-hmm. exactly. And so I, I see, see, you know, each of us has a role to play. If we see that, there is some value in bravery and, and heroism and, and, and these big challenges. Mm. We need to act it out. And we need to pass it on to our children and our family and our friends and our loved ones because it's not the story that our culture is giving us. And if mm. we just let the culture guide, guide the next generation, we already are starting to see that there's a lot of negative outcomes from trying to protect people from, you know, trying to make people safe mm. doesn't make them resilient. 
yeah or necessarily ultimately safe no <laughs> unfortunately or happy that's right definitely not happy um it was it's something we've talked about on the podcast a few times especially with mothers and that is that example that we give to the kids in particular um you yeah. know i i can remember many times where mm-hmm. i was figuratively thrown out of the car and ran home <laughs> the rest of the way or yeah. got out of the car early and ran to wherever we were going like that kind of yeah. ability to number one provides an example but number two and importantly in that those instances it was fitting it in you know when you were training yeah. for a marathon or you're doing whatever sometimes if, so for yeah. them to see you do something that's uncomfortable I mean we're just talking yeah. about running but in order and to fit it into what is a busy life that becomes part yeah. of their DNA because you're part of their DNA and it's you know there's all this other stuff that we talk about um and so that's that's one of the ways, some of the ways that I get over that kind of when people bring up, you know, I don't have time for that because I've got all these responsibilities and it would be selfish yeah. for me to take time for myself away from all of yeah. these other things. <laughs> yeah, I think the one word I, I like is we need to show that there's some value in being unreasonable at times. Yeah, and and that's that's often what it, what it looks like because you know like you said mm. sometimes you have to get up super early in the morning sometimes mm. you'll get dropped off on the road on the way home yep. and you'll run home to get your runner yeah. but it's it's showing that if you really value something to make it work sometimes you have to be completely unreasonable yeah. and you know and that might and you know and yeah. you have to be the one to pay the cost you know you as 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 the individual who wants sees value in this goal you have to show people that that you're willing to be unreasonable, you know, in, in a way that you pay the price mm-hmm. to do these things. So you'll be the one who'll get up at 4am and, you know, do a three hour run or two hour run before the kids get up. And, and I think that's really inspiring. And for me, I'm very lucky because I've got to play the game of running at more of a sort of, you know, an elite athlete level. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I get, you know, sponsored and, you know, get to go to all these great races. And, and so I'm normally getting to train at the more um, gentlemanly hours of the day. So, <laughs> And you what? know, so when you I'm don't like running, getting up at three thirty in the morning, so you can fit in a two-hour run. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I totally, I see huge value in, it. and so that's that's the thing. So people who are you know talented and fast and have capacities, you know, whether it's financial or, or physical capacities, we look at people who make mm. the, the running work by going running at four a.m. in the morning. Like yeah. to me, that's incredibly inspiring because that's something that I'm not called to do in my yeah. life at the moment. And yeah. so when I see someone who actually is called to do that and they're willing to pay that price to, you know, try and run their first 100K or 100 miles, mm-hmm. for me, that's incredibly inspiring. And so when I look at the athletes that I coach, a lot of them, they inspire me, mm-hmm. although I've had more success outwardly, the sacrifices that they're willing to make at times, to me, that is just so unreasonable. Yeah. But it's incredibly inspiring when I see <laughs> them doing these things. I think it's so fantastic. And so I think that's one of the great things about the, the, the running community, and especially as you get into these longer races, you see people, the price that they pay to play, you know, mm. they might have four kids or five kids and, mm-hmm. and, you know, a really busy demanding job and they still manage to make it work because they see some value in it that's so high that they're willing to pay that price. And that makes me really, um, that makes me really proud to be part of a community mm. like that, where people people value it so much that they're willing to do things that other people mm. just think it would be it's so r- absurd and ridiculous. But in our community, it's like, no, totally, yeah, get up at yeah, three a.m. and go for a three-hour right. run. I'll, I'll meet you. We like it to you. <laughs> <Whatever. laughs> you know, some silly o'clock just yeah. to get somewhere. Um, yeah. 
example-wise going up uh, rather than down with the children, but going up. When I first decided to do a marathon and had completed it, I was in my um, late 30s um, and my father who plays golf, he's um, skis, he's played football here in Australia, um, he's English. Um, he so that's saying something. Play cricket. Um, so he's been. He's always been the sporting parent of my two parents. Yeah, but never sort of been a runner for you know pure purely running. He burst into tears because I'd run a marathon. He yeah. said, "You're the first person ever. because it has that kind of um, ethos or that kind of a mythology around it. Um, that yeah. kind of marathon to the general community, and especially if anyone's yeah. slightly sporting and and understand that a marathon is not five kilometers, which yeah, I've had people say, <laughs> so, which is always makes me laugh. How long? How long is your marathon? What's your marathon? I've heard often. <laughs> it's, and so it, it, I could, I always uh, remember that that because it was such a shock, yeah. you know, because it was obviously having an effect not just you know, on my children as they're growing up, which kind of, yeah. you know, obviously, because I'm such a big part of their lives or was, they're all a bit older now, but um, even for, you know, my father. And I, I think it, you can extrapolate that out to actually everybody who's connected with you or someone who just sees you running yeah. down the road and then sees you again two hours later because they're on their way home from yeah. shopping and they Coming go, back the they, other way. To, they go, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So, but it has an effect. Yeah. Like, there's all this ripple butterfly kind of thing going on. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I think. I, I think that example of your father, that's a really beautiful example mm. because for, for a lot of a lot of people, especially if you don't see yourself as an athlete and you see someone else as an athlete, you know, you mm. that's kind of part of their persona. And a, a lot of people haven't had those positive experiences around sport. And so it's so amazing and transformative when you start to create that persona of you, yourself as an athlete and you realize you can do difficult and challenging mm. things. And then when you see people in the outside world, you know, people are in your circle of influence. And when they start to interact with you and start to celebrate your success as, as really an athlete, it's, it's really powerful for people to yeah. see that, that, that we can at any point in our lives transform ourselves. Yeah. We're not stuck as being the person we are today. If we're not happy with who we are right here, right now, we actually have this amazing capacity to take actions in the here and now and start to transform mm. who we are. And uh, one, one, one idea I really like is that often we have this, this mistaken relationship between the past and the present. Mm -hmm. And so if you kind of ask people how, what's like there was, there was a good study done and they asked people, uh, I think it was students in America, to, to sort of um, had three circles. There was the past, the present, and the future. Mm -hmm. And they asked people, what is the relationship, you know, what do you feel is the relationship between the past, the present, and the future? And most people who've grown up in, in the West will have this idea that the past is on the left. Like if you have three circles, you put the past on the left, you put the present in the middle, and you put the future on the right. Mm -hmm. And it's basically the same way that our writing runs. It goes from yeah. left to right. Yeah. And so, so most students um, in the study did that. But there were some students from Asia who took all three circles and stacked them up on top of each other. Wow. So the past, the present, and the future <laughs> all existed here and now in this moment. That's and amazing. it's like, wow, that's that's a very different perspective to look at. And so I started to really mm -hmm. think about that. And so, so the analogy that I like to use is that if we look at a boat traveling across a lake, and if we look at the lake, and if it was say early in the morning, and say we're standing on top of a hill, and we see the lake is like glassy, crystal, mm -hmm. crystal clear, and very glassy, and you see the boat traveling across the lake, and you see all these ripples coming out, you know, mm -hmm. being left, you know, coming out behind the boat. 
So if we look at the way we look at our relationship, so that's kind of the analogy. I'll just put yeah, that yeah. there. So the boat traveling yeah. across the lake, the ripples passing, yeah. coming behind it. The way we look at our lives often, we see every action we've taken in the past has led to us being who we are right here in the, in the mm-hmm. present moment. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, who we are now is, is a function of the past. It's, the past is creating the present. That's, that's one way that people will commonly yeah. in our society mm-hmm. look at the relationship. The past has created us in the present. Yeah. That's the same as saying that the boat moving across the lake is being caused by the ripples behind it. We're saying mm-hmm. the ripples that have been left behind by the boat are pushing the boat across mm-hmm. the lake. Mm, and we know that that's patently the absurd. The boat in the present <laughs> yes. moment is creating the ripples that are, yes. that are being left behind it. Yeah. Just the same way that us, our actions in the present moment are creating the past that ripples out behind us. Mm. So instead of looking at our life as being, uh, looking at our reality as being a functional, us being trapped by everything that's happened to us in mm. the past has created our future. It's like, no, 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 that's, mm. you've got it totally the wrong way mm. around. Our actions in the future are creating our past. So wow. if we're unhappy with our past, what we need to do is not focus on the past. Yes. We need to focus more and more <laughs> on our actions in the present. And then we're immediately going to start to transform our past. If you've got a really, yeah. you know, if your past is ugly and horrible and full of problems, don't stay stuck in the past to try and fix it. Bring all of your conscious awareness and intention mm-hmm. and effort into the present moment and start creating a better past. Yeah, I love so, that. Yeah, so I, I think it's, it's so funny how a slight change in perspective yeah. can have really powerful mm-hmm. ramifications in, in how you experience reality. I did an Enneagram, like this is like just a you and me conversation. No one else is listening. I did an Enneagram a long time ago. Well, actually not a couple of years ago. And I was a seven and I'm very much, I don't know if you know anything about Enneagram, but they're very future. It's just like a personality test, but it was one of the ones that I've done. And I went, well, that's actually me. My personality is almost, and there's positive and negatives with everybody's, almost all positive. Like I'm a, as a, behavior like I just think I'm just always see the positive glasses always half full but as a result yeah. also I'm very future focused in fact I yeah. almost ignore something that happened five minutes ago so um, yeah <laughs> you know I, and that has its good and bad that's like you, to be positive all the time is actually you you don't always need to be spinning things to a positive yeah. thing that, that can be end up being a negative way to look at some things so um but I guess what I'm trying to say is I can relate to that like I tend to live in the future what I need to do is live more here so some people I know live way back there in the past yeah so I I can see it I'm aware self-aware yeah um yeah so just interesting to hear you know your perspective on some of the things that you just said then you know in relation to how we look at what our past is and how we you know, should be trying to move. So I kind of got the forward bit already because I just ignore the past. Yeah. That, that was already, that's happened. I can't change that. So, <laughs> I'm, yeah. but I need to be more now. So I probably live in the future. So it's kind of a, hmm, yeah. Funny and and that's, <laughs> I think, I think, you know, what you're saying is, is, is a beautiful thing as well, because you were talking about balance, which was what yes. we talked about right at the beginning yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, you mentioned balance. And so, so having that balance, and I really, one of the symbols that I really love is the yin-yang symbol. Yeah. So that's the symbol that's, that's half black, half white. It's like yeah. two water drops, one black, one white. Yeah. And the idea with that symbol is it represents duality. It represents light and darkness. It represents masculine and feminine. It represents order and chaos. 
Um, you could say it represents the past and the future. And the goal of the yin yang is not to stand on either side. Mm. It's to stand with, it's to walk the line in between the two. So the line in between the two with one foot in chaos, one foot in order, one yeah. foot in the masculine, one foot in the feminine, one foot in the, in the, the, one in the order. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so, so having, having that sort of balance and, and that mm. position and you, to keep that balance, you need to constantly be shifting because that's the thing about reality. Reality is constantly changing. So, yeah. so when we say about balance, balance is not a static thing. Balance is a completely adaptive response to the world because we're constantly having to move to keep that balance and so that's that that for me is is what i what i try and sort of take into the world is that i'm trying to be in the the here and now as as strongly as possible but trying trying to keep that balance always and and being flexible not becoming rigid and fit Mm. being accepting and, and and able to move um, with the experiences I'm having and not, not fixing myself in a box and saying, I'm this sort of person and I like these sorts of experiences and, and being willing to, to adapt and to change through, through the experiences that I have. I hope you enjoyed this half of our conversation. Shoot me through a message. I'd love to hear your thoughts. And stay tuned because next week I'll bring you the second half and it's just as cool and exciting. Thank you for listening to the Fit Mind Fit Body podcast. I'd love to talk to you about your running journey. Send me a message on Facebook or on the website and let's do it. I also wanted to let you know that I've created an email list so you won't miss any podcast episodes. You'll find details in the show notes and on the Fit Mind Fit Body website, along with a bunch of resources on mindful running. They'll help you to get and stay mentally and physically fit. And I'll see you there. Plus, I'll be back here in your podcast player a few times a week. Hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And before you go, I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a review. It'll help more people to find the podcast and get inspired to start running and ultimately to improve their life. See you soon.